Hello and welcome to Confidently Wrong, a show by regular dudes talking with confidence about content we have no right to speak about with any kind of authority, but do it anyway. I'm Wesley Nakamura, and as always, I'm joined by award-winning director Brian Redondo and Savan Jones, aka Captain Bonnie. This is episode 134, and we're geeking out over a new animated series on Netflix called Blue Eye Samurai. I'm confident that it's going to be the best show you've ever listened to, and well, hey, if it's not, you can always ask us for a refund. Incredible! Hello, gentlemen. Welcome. Savan, it's good to have you back. Brian is in the studio. We're... Talking we're in to the each studio. Other. Yeah, talking. Really? Well, we're in we're in a virtual studio talking to each other across the country. Um, the we got studio the that is America. <laughs> what? Yeah. What a shitty studio. <laughs> it's a good studio. It's just it doesn't live up to its potential. It's like, dude, this place. <laughs> oh, they they sold us a bill of goods that were much better than what we actually have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's still good. It's still good. What could be better. Uh, haters, haters. Well, actually, so we were talking about America, and right before we started recording, um, <laughs> we're gonna talk about uh, Blue Eye Samurai on this. I shouldn't say uh. We're gonna talk about Blue Eye Samurai on this show. And a new Netflix show, uh, it's been kind of, I think, a little bit under the radar, but word of mouth is pretty good. So we were really, really excited to to dive into it. And then Brian Brian kind of told us, like, hey, my buddy told me about this. Who is your buddy? Give him a shout it out. Was, it was highly recommended by a couple of our diehard, confidently wrong listeners. One uh, was uh, my homie, Sean. What's up, Sean? Writer of comic book uh, City of Walls. And the other is my dance buddy, Dr. Tim Funky Fungus. Hey! Shout out to both of them for recommending. Wah, 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 wah. Also, Tyler and Kendall brought it up too in some of our like eight. To your point about the word of mouth, I also like y'all brought it up to me. But in my period of time before watching this, I think y'all brought it up. I think Mike brought it up. Tyler and uh, Kendall both brought it up in our own chat. Like, I had a lot of people out of nowhere. I think a coworker brought it up to a lot of folks. I'm like, why do I keep hearing about Blue Eyed Samurai? In fact, Kendall mentioned mm. it to me. A and while these are not ago. like the otaku crowd necessarily. I mean, like, so, we yeah, watch a lot of It's yeah. a show. Uh, yeah, what you saying? It, it's, it's a show that I don't think was on any of our radars until it dropped and until people started talking about it. And I think that's true for most people, right? It was, it was not like a looking forward to this thing that's going to drop and you know we're waiting with bated breath for this series it's sort of like it just landed in our laps and yeah. suddenly there's a groundswell of interest it's uh, like squid with game good reason mm-hmm. a lot of exactly. netflix, a lot of netflix animation a lot of netflix shows for all the issues and woes netflix has with pumping out really mediocre stuff that they cancel when they have something really quality word of mouth usually does a great job of just promoting it organically. Cause I think something similar happened with that Castlevania show. You know, I didn't see advertising everywhere, but I just heard people talking about it, gave it a watch and was like, Oh, this shit is fire. So, and arcane arcane too. There's a lot of good, again, all Netflix, Netflix's woes when they have a good show, word of mouth does a great job of spreading it. I think because their platform is so huge, even if it's gotten mediocre collectively over the years, like, it has access and eyes on it, and that does a good job of letting the quality speak for itself. I like how like Netflix spends all this money on their algorithm trying to get you to like watch something, but like the real algorithm is just your buddy telling you that this is a good show. Yeah, turns <laughs> yeah, out, so like, turns out the- <laughs> why did and- they do all that? <laughs> 
And this show isn't based on some other IP that you're already familiar with. Mm-hmm. So it's nice. like all the all the corporate considerations that they make when greenlighting stuff are just out the window on this one. It's like it's just good. Yeah. So watch it. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. All right. So uh, let's talk a little about the thing that we were talking about earlier, and then we'll come, we'll jump into the show. I think we could spend a couple minutes on this. Yeah. So Sav. We were talking before this about how like this this show is set kind of in old time Japan, maybe like seventeen eighteen hundred something like that. It's in a isolationist period for Japan. Um, the gun gunpowder like firearms are just starting to appear. We don't know how long they've sort of been around in the world, but um, they're they're just starting to make their way into Japan. So it's the time of the samurai. It's a time of like very martial arts and the time of the emperors and things like that. Uh, you know, a very a very stereotypical time period to to kind of illustrate in animation and movies. Um, but then Savan was like, "Oh, Wes, we haven't talked about this." So Savan, what were your what were you talking about? Yeah. So my question towards Wes was, uh, and I wanted to make sure I asked it in a tasteful, respectful manner. Is you know we consume a lot of. I love he that said, you "I'm not trying to get yeah, trying to get canceled." You hear me? Look, uh, but yeah, we watch a lot of Japanese and just like Eastern animation and shows. And I was asking Wes, especially for a show like this that is very deeply steeped in Japanese culture, and I think you know I'm not an expert, but it seems like they do a good job of trying to be authentic, trying to really represent elements of the culture. I asked Wes, "Hey, you know, you're someone who." has Japanese ancestry, what is your, you know, relationship to your, you know, past heritage across, you know, across the ocean? How does that relate to how you perceive these shows or how you receive them? And a little bit of, you know, from your own family side, what is y'all's relationship to Japanese culture? And does it manifest in your day-to-day life? Does it impact how you view these shows that, again, some of them are more fantastical, but others seem to take a really solid swing at being period period active like you know what is how does that look and feel to you if anything yeah so we what we found is that we have a little bit in common in sort of a, a weird way right in terms of our our ancestry me and savan because my parents were both born in the u.s well technically i think my dad was born in a territory because i don't think hawaii becomes a state until after he was born like until he's like five or six years old when yeah. you were so, your dad born yeah 45 i think that was right so i think why becomes a state. state in 51 or something it was around that same time something like that but yeah 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 I see what you're saying. so i think but but whatever i mean he's an easy he's happened citizen. in 59 it that. happened in 59 uh, okay so i mean he's he's already what 14 by the time hawaii officially becomes a state mm-hmm. i mean it's functioning as a state already at that point but um you know it hadn't been fully uh fully formalized my formalized my mom was born in california um but then it's it's different because my grandparents were both born in the u.s um on both sides and lived most of their life in the u.s my my mom's dad i think spent some time in his childhood growing up in japan um and then it, so it wasn't them that were technically like our immigrants um that brought our family here and then my great grandparents would have been the people who traveled here. I, I never met them. I barely met my own grandparents. They were they were pretty old um, or they had passed away mostly by the time I was born. Um, and so as far as I can tell, my family started in the U.S. in the early 1900s, like maybe 1908, that kind of time period. You know, so it's four generations. Nobody in my family currently speaks Japanese. Uh, we don't know anybody who like lives in Japan. So our and ties yet- to Japan... Yet you pronounce it samurai. <laughs> How would you pronounce it? Samurai? I don't know. Oh, 
As soon as you start saying, I thought you were doing. I thought you were doing a bit. I thought he was doing a bit for a second. I'm like, I'm not gonna tell this man how to say it. Oh, what did you say? How do you think, bro? Yo, you you tell us. What? How do you say Samurai Jack? Samurai. Samurai Jack. I say Sam. Not some like a sum of goods like Sam. Like you know the name. Like. Sam the Eagle or Sam's Club. Well, Uncle this Sam. This is not a. This was not something I learned at home, but I did take Japanese in high school and in college from you know not my parents because they don't speak Japanese, and an A in Japanese is pronounced ah, so it'd be samurai. Anyways, well, not neither here or there. Yeah, but that's not something I learned at home. That's something I had to learn at at my high school. <laughs> so so there's a lot of like we we definitely don't have very good context in my family or me personally about like what japan is like what ancient japan is like we don't necessarily carry over many of the cultural traditions uh savan was like i've never been to your house is your house filled with like american things is it filled with japanese things there are definitely things that are like asian-ish like looking like in terms of decoration but for the most part it'll probably look like most american houses like you know just out there like you know big couch and and we sleep on beds we don't sleep on like sleep on like a tatami mat like they do in the in the show so there's there's a very a very surface level i think familiarity with japanese culture but i couldn't tell you like you know the ins and outs of anything going on there i just learned that like on tiktok or on instagram there's like this video going around of people saying like they don't in japan they don't consider sleeping with prostitutes cheating most people like they're like, oh, no, because you pay for it. It's just like it's just a like like going to the bar. It's just a transaction. It's but it's not cheating. And I was like, whoa, that is a very different way of looking at things. So I had no idea. Like, you know, I, I just not is moving to Jap- Japan, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jen. No. Um, I, yeah. So, no, my familiar with with Japanese culture is very limited. Uh, I mean, the joke when you're a kid which is pretty harmful is is that you're like a twinkie or that i was a twinkie because like you're yellow on the outside white on the inside if you're really, black on the inside really uh uh i don't know it's the opposite of an oreo i guess a reverse oreo we're getting into some really just like we're getting into <laughs> some wild territory so there were lots of harmful you know ideas out there and you know people would say like oh wes like you don't speak japanese like how sad that you like lost your culture and you know, I used to agree with that. I was like, oh, yeah, that is sad. And I was like, wait a second. Like, that was never my culture. My culture is just being American. Like, you can't lose something that you never had, you know. So uh, it's it's interesting that like, people prescribe how you should be an Asian in America. And so that, that becomes a thing that, like, I didn't have language for any of this until I went to college and met people like Brian who were like, no, bro, that's, you know that's white privilege and i was like what's white privilege you know so like, oh god college era like west that, i that. would pay good money i think oh man i was i was so wide open like what that's when he had the nardo hair <laughs> yes yes talk about finding yourself yeah we had a we had an interesting moment where savan was also kind of saying similar things in terms of like he doesn't base his identity on on having heritage from somewhere else, right? Like both for both of us, it seems like we're, we view ourselves as like American first. Our experiences are entirely about growing up in America and the ways that our families have functioned within American society way more than it is about our ties to any other culture. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, similar thing, right? Like obviously the context is different, but I've talked about how for better or for worse, I grew up in America. That's where all my culture I've taken in comes from. 
the music, the history, all of my heroes, people like Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, MLK, they're all Americans, right? Uh, when I think about the civil rights movement or even like the reconstruction era of the 1800s, you know, the civil war and freeing of slaves, all of like the slave culture and how that impacts a lot of black American cultures today. To me, that's a uniquely American thing. And that's where a lot of my things, you know, the element of my heritage I'm interested in. So I told Wes, I'm more interested in what my ancestors in the 1800s or even 1700s were up to less so than what country of origin my ancestors came from because and you know that's one of the reasons i never did one of those ancestry tests because yeah that'd be i guess a nice tidbit to know but that for me at least and everyone's different some people that's a very important part of their identity and i completely understand because i have friends who are like the opposite right to those things those things are privacy nightmares what the fuck yeah but that's a I whole nother that's a whole nother can of worms <laughs> but it's one of those for me knowing what part of West Africa my ancestors came from isn't really a needle moving yeah. for my identity, but knowing what my ancestors in the 1800s were up to is a huge needle mover for my identity. So, you know, especially in a show like this, that's about culture, background, who you are, what's important to you and what makes up your identity. It's a fun little side subtopic, right? Cause a big, I think a big driving part of the plot of the show or the character's own self-actualization is who they are, what their identity is and what parts and, 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 multi, what, and really multi what Japanese, ways. Yeah. What does that mean for you? Well, also in like what Japanese society, at least as depicted in the show, expected of them, especially of the women in the show. Mm -hmm. um, but even of the men, right? Like there was, there was talk about like what you should do, what is honorable, what is right, you know, blah, blah. And all of that was based on these cultural norms that, that the art, that the writers, you know, put into the show. Um, and I, you know, whether any of that was, actually happening or not i have no idea i mean it sounds kind of consistent with what i know about it but my my knowledge is very limited uh you know you could fit what i know probably onto like an index card you know this big and then be done with it so so um, there, there's like this weird uh expectation for both of you guys just based on purely on race purely on on how you appear that maybe both of you have some sort of like connection or cultural connection to all these people and things and cultures that are happening very far away mm -hmm. from both of your lives. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, I guess kind of what we're talking about here is that in blue eyed samurai, there's, there are expectations that are just laid on people that do not reflect the reality of those individuals. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a fun conversation of, you know, what's important to you and what's not and how it matters. Cause the flip side is that, I know other black people, black Americans who did do ancestry tests, go back to Africa and they say, oh, you're back to where their country of origin most likely was. And they say it was a life changing experience. So it's a there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's everyone's individual journey. But it's a fun this show in particular, I think, peaks a very fun topic or a very interesting topic. And I'm glad we get to have this little sub conversation because. That was definitely something that floated in the back of my head, which we'll talk more about with the character show. But there's so many layers to identity, what should be important to you, people being boxed in by their culture and how that can be an obstacle to self-actualizing that, you know, even if you yourself haven't lived some of the you can't relate entirely to measles experiences. I think it's something we can all look in the mirror and kind of ask ourselves, why is this important to me? Have I reflected on why it's important? How much of it is society's expectations being put on me versus me you being on your own journey of what do you care about when you're deciding who you are as an individual fun amen 
Let's get into the show. Yeah, buddy. Blue Eye Samurai. All right, so we said Netflix, created and written by Michael Green and Amber Noizumi. They're a husband and wife team. Um, Michael Green has been a writer. Brian, you said uh, Clouseau movies? Like yeah. Like Death, uh, Death on the like, Nile. Right, right, right. Something uh, else, too. The Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah. You know, those, um, those movies with uh, Kenneth Branagh where he's got the, he's like the, the crazy French detective, right? Uh, okay. And then also, I think, a co-writer on Blade Runner 2049 and on Logan. So he's got mm. some chops here in some action spaces, but spaces where are movies where they're kind of really exploring identity and, and like what it means to to struggle with the things that like you're you're dealing with, you know, um, we've got some cool voice actors in this one. So Maya Erskine, who's no, normally known for her comedy. Um, she just had a show on Hulu come out like uh, maybe six months ago and then um, where she plays like a teenager growing up to be, I don't know, 30 or something like that. And then George Takei makes an appearance here. Masioka of Heroes fame from way back in the day. Yeah, buddy. Welcome uh, back, Masioka. Our good uh, our good friend uh, Randall Park from from Blockbuster and the uh, other shows. What was what was, what was Do his people name know him Ant-Man? from Blockbuster? I, I don't, don't know. think that's his claim. No. Yes. Oh, uh the, the one he's show. in the mcu man mcu no but he's also in the, the other show it was like fresh off the boat or something i haven't watched fresh oh off the right, boat. right right that's what he's known for fresh off the okay boat. fresh off the yeah. boat but kenneth branagh is also a voice actor in this one so there must have been like michael green must have talked to him you know from from his days working with them on uh on those other movies uh and then a guy who i i recognize his face but i don't know what he's necessarily from carrie hiroyuki tagawa hopefully we're saying that right uh, I think he was in like Mortal Kombat or something, but Ooh. pretty cool actor. Yeah, and then so anyways, Brenda, Brenda Song too from animated. Disney Channel, Sweet Life of oh, Zack and Cody. Yeah. Sorry, I left her out because I didn't know who she was. Don't forget Savan's uh, life partner. Yeah, yeah, life she's partner. Bae. Although she's yep. married to your boy from Home Alone. The Mac- what's the name? Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, they're married. Yeah. Are you serious? Dead. Could not yes. be more serious. Absolutely serious. Whoa, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, shout out to well, him. Good for them. He's winning. Yeah. All right, eight episodes animated. Very cool animated style. I think we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so the main character name is Mizu, skilled, like extremely skilled warrior, European father because they have blue eyes. And apparently in Japan at this time, Japan, they tell you in the kind of title cards, like Japan has been isolationist. No one from the outside world is allowed in. And so having blue eyes or being of European descent is really seen as a, as kind of a, a lower class citizen they're they're treated really poorly um i think it is a nice way of saying that and so she's basically an outcast within within this you know ancient japanese society not ancient in this old uh japanese society so that's kind of the setup and did i say she again uh it's just, i'm not gonna be not able to do it it's too bad it's too bad sorry sorry it's a she we're just gonna go with it um <laughs> surprise yeah. All right. Anyways, let's we're we're not going to do any other spoilers for a second. So if you haven't seen the show, listen in because I think it'll be interesting to hear this part before you go watch it. If you or deciding if you want to watch it. So I really really love this show. I think I was just like I was drawn into the universe, the characters, the action was awesome. We're not getting paid, um, unfortunately. But what would be your pitch to people who haven't seen the show? Why they should watch it? Like. Uh, my pitch would be everybody I've talked to has loved it. I haven't heard a single people who person who's seen it who just was like, 
Yeah, it was fine. Everyone who's who's watching has been like, yo, this is awesome. So that would be my pitch. It's pretty wide appeal, I think. As long as you like a little bit of animation and a little bit of action, I think you'd be into it. Brian, what's your pitch? I'll be honest. So when I first saw the title Blue Eyes Samurai, I was like, what? I'm not going to watch that shit. That sounds like The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. We did that already. We We don't need to... See some like <laughs> European guy parading around Japan, slicing other Japanese people. I thought the um, same thing. Then... I thought the exact same thing. Like when I heard that, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I totally eyes, wrote I like, it off. Dude, what is this? Blue? Do I want to watch something called Blue Eyed Samurai? Like I was acting like, like the, I was acting no. like the natives in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Monsters. Um, but then, but then, you know, with as Wes said, people were telling me, "Oh, this is good." And then I saw the trailer, and I realized, I realized that. Oh no 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 no! This this is uh this is a interracial or multiracial person uh navigating Japan and it's very different. And I think for me, one of the things that uh uh Conflict Wrong fan Sean said to me was that this is kind of like Quentin Tarantino Kill Bill Part One, uh with like a dash of Disney like Hunchback of Notre. Notre Dame style and I think that is actually kind of accurate here I mean you're you're getting you're getting like the trading montages the apprenticeship the the killing the the revenge storyline massive amounts of blood uh in an art style that is kind of reminiscent of that late 90s period of, of Disney animation um which is which is kind of cool to look at uh and and as Savan pointed out in our pre-show talk this is kind of maybe a Mulan story <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I think, I think those ingredients actually make it uh, a really fun watch and, and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Sav. Yeah. So you got 30 seconds. What's the pitch? Who, why should they watch this show? It's an original IP, not based on anything from before. So you're getting a completely fresh story. People always say, I want something new. I want something fresh. This is exactly that. There might be homages. You could say to some other stuff, but this is its own unique characters and taking advantage of the setting. But why you should watch this is this show, intentional or otherwise, is like an homage love love letter to anyone who's always liked samurai, Edo Japan era, like animated stories. So when I watch this show, I get shades of samurai champloo in terms of just the traveling town to town, almost little mini individualized stories that have their own things going on and meeting these unique characters on an episode-by-episode basis. But it also reminds me a lot of uh, Afro Samurai, where you have this beautiful animation. But again, it's the story of a stoic warrior on a quest for revenge. Like a lot of, and to be clear, a lot of these samurai stories, let's not pretend that they're all just super unique. They all tend to have some very similar overlaps. But if you like Samurai Champloo, if you like Afro Samurai, even shows like Cowboy Bebop, where you're just going town to town, having these episodic adventures with a larger plot. This show does all of that, but with its own unique twist on the characters, the animation, and frankly, just very well done execution. The biggest advantage this show has over some of the others is that, unlike a lot of anime that gets dubbed over, and the voice acting is usually pretty good, this show didn't do any dubbing, period, because it was just made in English natively, and so I think it reflects in a stronger voice acting performance than what you might get from something that's adapted from uh, non-English speakers initially. 
Yeah, it was written by uh, an, uh, Americans, I assume. We, there isn't much on Amber Noizumi's oh, I couldn't, record. I couldn't find too much I think on this it. is her first show, but um, well, she's, Michael um, Green is an American. She's Japanese-American, and uh, she says in an interview, I think, that when they had a child, right, and their child had blue eyes, huh? Had blue eyes. Um, it was kind of shocking to her, right? Because yeah. she was expecting, you know, to see her child look like her, but she actually, you know, looked a little bit different. Um, and I think that was the the seedling uh, that would grow into this show. So let's step back i think real quick or sorry i want i wanted to like talk about some spoilers now so if you if you're not convinced to watch the show keep listening because we're going to talk about it and break it down if you are interested in the show i highly recommend going to watch it first before we talk about it because i think while we could maybe like give you things to look out for it's just it's i think it's way more fun to experience the show just for the first time without knowing anything because like savan said it's not it's not based on anything else it's just a show that they started from scratch and while it certainly borrows heavily from other things you know it, the way that it's put together obviously is going to be unique in this show so um i wanted to zero in on one thing and then we'll kind of zoom back out so mizu she's set up as this character who doesn't want to make any connections isn't particularly likable kind of tells people to fuck off a lot um extremely skilled right as as a samurai as a warrior but people people are drawn to her but very stoic right like doesn't really show a whole lot especially in the beginning there's just kind of this like well whatever like i'm just doing what i'm doing i'm like you know just a very lone ranger kind of character here and there isn't a whole lot to go on for like why should i like care about this character but somehow like we keep watching the show like, what about this show is able to sort of overcome that initial just, like, kind of almost not, la I guess, lack of personality, lack of pizzazz on the the main character? Um, what what really draws us in there? Brian, I wanted to see what you thought as, as someone who's kind of has, you know, been in filmmaking. Like, how do you de design a character that's so kind of one note and then still make us care about the show? I mean, did you actually think that she was unlikable? Because I, you know, I immediately I started watching and was like, "Oh, this is a great character. Um, this is this is a very much an anti-hero character, a, a noir character. You know, somebody like a Wolverine or something like that. You know, the lone wolf, right? Lone wolf and cub. Also, another, uh, you know, probably reference point for the for the show, but a character that is completely about their their revenge path right and are are so good at what they do uh you know basically cutting heads off you know and taking names <laughs> literally just shoop. yeah yeah just uh you know amazing at that aspect of things you know think of john wick right like this is very much that kind of character um john wick is trying to avenge the death of his dog uh mizu is trying to uh avenge the you know death of her mom uh, also just, you know, her, her life, the life that she has lived as this monstrous outcast, um, thrown away by the rest of Japanese society in this period. And so when we see her slicing people and doing it so expertly and, and doing it full heartedly, uh, you know, nothing else is distracting her, but we also know the reason behind it. I think those two things actually make for a very compelling watch. You know, somebody who's just expertly skilled, um, but also 
really sad and sympathetic uh, because of what they've gone through. And, you know, and I think John Wick actually is, is a great analogy that that is kind of what makes it worthwhile and engaging. Um, and, and because we tease out that little bit of storyline for why they're on this path, we want to know more. Sav? Anything to add? Brian kind of said it. Oh, you're on mute. Can't hear you. So I'm trying not to sniffle into the mic. Uh, no, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Brian said. The biggest thing that made me like Mizu as a character is the balance between them being brutal but not cruel. So even in some of the, especially in the first few episodes, and maybe this will change as I watch, but Mizu really doesn't go for the kill on somebody unless they're actively trying to kill them or if they actually that's the main thing or if they just say something that's just blatantly out of pocket but even when they're like attacking the dojo they're brutalizing and beating the crap out of people but they are very much not going for kill moves they're going for brutalize you moves but also they kind of brought it upon themselves by not just you know uh meeting that request of hey let me talk to y'all let me talk to y'all master just to make things easier so what i like about the characters there and to your point brian almost wolverine energy of I will tear you up, but I'm not just a vicious killer who's just taking lives for no reason either. But damn, if I need to take a life, I am damn good at it. That alone <laughs> was really fun to watch. And then for me, the characters just... I like the characters when you learn about their backstory, just the internal conflict, the self-hatred piece, them being solely motivated by revenge. To me, that already opens up to an interesting character arc of, hey, this is not a sustainable way to live your life. Living just for revenge and nothing else over societal perceptions of why you should be ashamed of yourself and hate yourself and all of that is a very unhealthy way to view yourself and to live life. And it's clear to me that that's going to be a part of them, their own growth and journey, I think, acceptance and self, like we said earlier, self-actualizing. So for me, just the way that they set it up in the first episode made me interested in this character because there's a lot of room for character development. They're going to lose some fights. They're going to get their ass beat. They're going to take some L's in this story of revenge because that's how a lot of revenge stories go. It's a question of what, what is gonna, what is this character gonna want beyond revenge? Because we know chances are they are going to get their revenge, and that's why I've always been a fan of these stories. Is what do you do once you get what you have? They've even said, "I don't want happiness. I want uh, what is it? I want it's not acceptance. It was a." Uh, they just they want satisfaction, not happiness. And I'm like, oof, that's a that's a bar. Let's see where your journey goes. So I like I like <laughs> I like the character quite a bit. And I was a big fan nice. of them right from the bounce, just because yeah, they're not cruel, but they are brutal. And we didn't even uh you know, we didn't even emphasize the like the biggest clincher or or the biggest key ingredient that makes this fresh and original is just the very fact that Mizu, our protagonist, is hiding both as uh, somebody with blue eyes, right? Biracial. So Mizu wears ro little rose-colored glasses to cover that up and is posing as a man, posing as a samurai. Um, and so those two things, just the, this, the hidden identity quality of this character set in this time period in a genre, a samurai genre that is rife with cliché, suddenly is fresh and new because we have this unique original perspective that 
I don't I personally haven't seen before. Yeah, like there's so many lines with someone like I like one of my favorite lines in the show was when the uh the four fangs came up to Mizu and calls him out and says, "We know who you are. We know what you're hiding. You can take those off." And you know, initially like yeah they're talking about the whole blue eyes because you're biracial and all this but then we the viewer also knows shit you think you know everything but <laughs> the, the layers like the character's whole thing is yeah to your point brian they're trying to hide their identity but there's so many layers of their hidden identity that it's like even when they're quote-unquote exposed for who they are it's like not really which again, I'm yeah. excited. That's gonna play. I haven't me. I haven't. I'm only five episodes in. There's more, and they didn't want to do a season two, but that's gonna become a factor too with other characters. And I can't wait to see how all of that. Like this show is just a masterclass in intersectionality and how your different <laughs> elements of your identity impact who you are. And then this character just has to deal with so. Yeah, this is just a great like case study of what intersectionalism looks like, and or intersectionality looks like. So I'm. I'm yeah, it's dope. Nice. So I think this show does a lot of things really well, like stepping back, kind of judging it on the whole. You could say like, oh, there's great action sequences. The story is kind of uh, is pretty compelling. The characters are are kind of layered on, you know, episode by episode. We learn more and more about them. What is it that stands out to you in terms of the show? Like, where is its strengths lie? Um, to me, I think number one for me is is the action. I think anytime there's an action sequence, a fight sequence, whatever. And I know like, yeah, okay, it's animated. So you don't necessarily have to play by the rules of like, well, that human has to physically go from point A to point B and do the things right. But there's there's just like an intensity of these action sequences that makes sense. The yes, there's brutality. Yes, there's like a lot of gore and blood and stuff. But I appreciate the way that it happens it's so much more like stylized, I think, than something like Invincible, um, where it's like the brutality is the point. Like, oh, like I stuck my my hand through your chest and grabbed your beating heart out and like pulled it out and we just stare at the beating heart over and over again. It's like that's not what it is. It's just like, oh, we have to see the like speed and uh I don't I don't know what to put it. It's just like the like craziness. Skill. Yeah, it's just like the skill and every every action scene or every action like shot is made to highlight these different fighters and how skilled they actually are, right? And like, you know, I mean, we've seen things like this before, but it's like, you know, someone gets sliced in the neck and nothing happens for a, a second and we're like, "Oh, what's going to, you know, and then all of a sudden you just start to see small bloodline trickle out and then phew, Right. Like that person, you know, starts bleeding out heavily. Uh, someone gets their like head sliced in half and, you know, just like a movie would do that. It kind of like slides off. Right. There's this like this like slow motionness to it because there's just inertia of the body. And so it's just like how fast they're getting their sword to go, how much strength and technique they're using illustrated by these action sequences that do include a lot of gore. Um, so that that's what has really bought me. And I think that's like one of the huge highlights of the show. And um it's not that it's never been done before. I think these, these guys just do it on a, on a really high level and the ways that they get their characters to move and use their environment is just, it's pretty deep. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. So I'm into it and it does, it doesn't, it's cartoonish, but it doesn't feel too cartoonish. If that makes sense. I don't know. Sav, what do you, what do you like highlighting about this show that, that feels like there's really a strength they're, they're relying on. The biggest one is that the show's general art style almost reminds you of like 
old style Japanese artwork and like painting styles. So when you see the characters and like even the women in the traditional Japanese makeup and like the geisha style stuff, it just all has a very authentic feel to it. For me, it's the art direction in general for the episode. You know, when even in that, even when it manifests in the dialogue, like normally sex scenes aren't really something that I'm super into, but there's a scene when I think Tygen is having sex with his wife after he's lost the duel and he's having this honor crisis. And she like has a whole allegory about fighting the blue eyed samurai, but she uses that to help initiate sex and try to win him over and calm him down and all of this. And like, as for normally what could just be a very gratuitous sex scene, it actually was like well done character development and you understanding how this character tries to push so-and-so's buttons to, win them over and it was just very yeah very well done i think the big thing like i agree with most of you saying about the choreography and fighting action sequences but what i'm most entertained about is just a lot of the non-action scenes are very just fun and engaging to watch like the sequence where they're at the festival where everybody has to strip naked and jump into the freezing lake to then grab the baton to grant their wish all of that was and i don't know how much of that i don't know enough about japanese culture to know the actual historical roots of all that but it was a really fun sequence to watch and it was very well executed despite having a bunch of, or because it used nudity in a very non-sexual, but still engaging way that I was like, Oh, all these new, like it felt like a real, there was a lot of flapping batons. Yeah. But it really, yeah, but it really, but it felt like a fun, just slice of life cultural piece that I was watching. And I'm like, I don't know what it is about this. That's so engaging to watch, but I'm enjoying this. As much as I'm enjoying Mizu having a cliffside fight with four badasses with multiple swords, you know, like that's what's getting me. These types of shows that are action oriented that can keep you super engaged just off the dialogue. Or, you know, when you have the older caretaker just talking to the girl who's played by Brenda Song, the princess, princess, I think Akimi, Akemi. Akemi. And, you know, their whole relationship of saying, I've always known you. And he tries to put her through the ringer to win her over and get her to give up on this stuff. Like, or just the focus on how women are put into a box and certain people are very self-aware, but how this drives characters. Like, for me, it's the non-action sequences that keep me super engaged that makes me enjoy the action sequences more because I don't feel like, oh, let's fight, let's get back to the fighting. I'm like, oh, no, I want to see these characters engage and talk because it makes the action sequences feel that much better. So they're doing a great job of making me just care about all of the non-combat characters. You know, I didn't think that Princess, is it Akimi? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Akimi. Yeah, I didn't think that she would be one of my favorite characters. But just watching this non-fighter character navigate this world parallel to some other characters who are absolutely, and frankly, with uh, Mizu, who's on a parallel-esque journey in certain ways, but is a combat badass, is a, they juxtapose well against each other, and it makes the show, it makes the the very long episodes really work. Because I would have thought a show like this would have shorter episodes, but some of these episodes are 45 minutes to an hour on average, you can't have that only be fighting sequences. A lot of it is just character dialogue or characters just doing training or inner reflection sequences. And it works really well. That's not easy to do. I think one thing too, I want to add not to, this doesn't go away from your point at all. Just 
the action sequences are also, or the fight scenes are also storytelling and character building, right? And so it's not just action for action's sake, but the and it it does move the story along, and it's part of the story. But I think you learn about the characters by how they fight, how they conduct themselves in a fight, um, and and the ways in which they move. I have a bad memory, so I can't think of anything in particular. Just like I think in the, the dojo first episode, scene, right? Like the dojo scene is yeah, the best the dojo example. Scene is like, perfect example. Yeah, and yeah. she likes she she takes his his top knot right like which is i guess a big deal but she does it like a super clean cut right like i mean the the character even remarks like holy cow like it was this they i stood still and they like razor bladed me for it um you know so i don't know yeah it just I, it was very cool i i wasn't doing anything in particular there brian just uh just my hand got stuck <laughs> well when you thumb stopped on camera suddenly a balloon emoji thumb did it popped up and i wanted to try to activate that also uh, it's not it, happening for me uh, is it still happening for me it has to do with like facetime is doing this anyways we're getting off track adhd in full effect here guys all right um brian did you want to did you want to add in some things about like what you notice is like the strengths of the show that it's leaning on well i would i want to add like a couple more examples to both of the things that you guys are talking about one with Every fight scene is different in this show. They're all really well choreographed fights. Mm-hmm. These and the way that it's that it's shot, I mean shot in quotes, uh, for this anime, you know, like very a lot of like 360 camera movements while Mizu's spinning around, fighting multiple people. Um, but as you mentioned, juxtapose usually with something else that is more about the story something completely left field like you mentioned the 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 baton chase that's happening simultaneously to the fight savan you probably haven't seen the episode yet where the whole episode has a shadow puppet or puppet not shadow puppet but puppet theater story playing out while the episode is also playing out and then you know they parallel each other and that's that's incredible another fight that happens in a future episode is basically a, a video game fight as Mizu tries to go level to level to reach the boss at the top oh, the, and every level they, the thing, yeah. offers something ridiculous and crazy uh, and feels very much like a video game in the best possible way. Uh, the, you even get sent back to level one. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, right. And, and then on the other side of that, right? Like the Mizu's arc, her revenge stories happening uh, Mizu is fighting against fighting against the patriarchy I guess she's, she's fighting against the station in life that she's given by by living uh, by pretending to be something that she's not exactly right that she's not permitted to be uh, similarly that goes back to Akemi's story Princess Akemi's story who also is trying to defy, defy the constraints around women in that society but doing it in a totally different way, right? She's, you know, she uses her wiles, her her sex and sexuality as as tools to be able to evade the things uh, that are forced upon her and try to find some wiggle room, trying to find her own uh, her own freedom in that world. And she has, I think, she has an incredible arc. And to me, like those things that we're talking about is really what makes the show uh, sing. Is that you know, it's not just about it's not just about the blood and violence. It's not just about the killing that happens in the show. It's all the other things that are happening outside of that, right? Alongside of it, uh, that really 
make it something more than just, you know, standard samurai fare, you know, cliche after cliche. Uh, they've, they've really channeled something else and, and, you know, brought a lot of fun ideas and executed at a high level to make something that is both really entertaining, but also really smart. Nice. So I want to start wrapping up a little bit. Um, what would you, would, would there be anything like you'd change or you're like, ah, I feel like it just kind of wasn't quite as strong in these other areas. Um, I think this is not necessarily a weakness of the show. I think they, they chose right in that they really focused in on Akemi and they really focused in on Mizu. And those are our two characters that, like you said, are sort of being juxtaposed against each other, given their different um, skill sets. But also, given that they live in the same society and are sort of constrained by similar expectations. Um, but but I wish there was just a little bit more drawn out or, like, developed with some of the other characters. Especially someone like... Um, uh, what's his name? Who's the, Ringo, who's the helper Tiger. friend? Yeah, Ringo. Ringo. Like, really wanted to know a little bit more about Ringo. And then I really actually wanted to know more about the sword maker. I know... He, like, I felt like... He was like this wise old owl. He was able to give sage advice and whatever, but we didn't really get to see like what, where he comes from and how he brings his experiences into, into the picture. And that's fine. I don't think it was necessarily a mistake that they didn't do that. I think I just found myself wanting to know a little bit more about some of these other characters so that they weren't so flat in, in terms of their, their approach. And I think it would have also been nice, not nice. It would have been helpful to have a little bit more, I think, information either through characterization or action or story like even flashbacks on the the main villain um abijah fowler who's who's kind of going to be the main villain in this this first season so i think if they could have you know it would have been nice if we had that built in somehow um but at the same time i wouldn't want it to get bloated i think you could get distracted by doing too much of that um and then lose kind of the the momentum and energy of of the season and i think they if they if they had considered some of those things they erred on the side of let's keep it moving let's keep the energy up and the momentum going and they that was probably the right choice because this the show works from from episode one to eight you know all the way through sav is there anything so far where you've been like oh i kind of wish they would do this or i'm kind of missing some of the pieces here no i have no like notes about what this show can be doing different or better i'm not done with the show so most theoretical complaints they might address it in the later episodes other than that, I'm just here for, I'm just loving that this show is a breath of fresh air. It's new, but it has familiar things that still draw me in. Like, you know, they always like, the, even the four fangs, like, oh, is this just a team of badasses that we know this character is going to slay, but it's going to be a dope fight? Cool. Have I seen this before in a bazillion other shows where they send a group of badasses to fight the protagonist? Yes. I don't care. The execution was great. You know, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. There's don't a care. lot of stuff that's like yeah. to your point. Yeah, you've probably seen versions of this and other stuff. I don't care. The fresh stuff is fresh enough to where I'm drawn in, and the execution so far has been good enough to where it's okay to. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like I said this before, right? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It just needs to be a damn good tire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I like, I like that there's like nuance too to these characters, and there isn't just like two sides right there, there's a built-in like ooh, yes this is how your situation is playing out and this is how your situation is playing out and like yes there's things in common but yes you also see things a little bit differently and the characters are starting you know they in the beginning they're like we're enemies and then as time goes on it's like oh we're not quite enemies we're 
we actually see things very similarly, but not all the way the same. And then there's like a love triangle, sort of, but like not really. And oh, damn you know, it. it's it's sort of okay. So that does confirm lot, some thoughts I had. <laughs> Spoiled. Two, I don't. Two I mean, two, I don't West. think they hide the ball on that kind of well, stuff. Well, I'm not so done yet. I don't think that's like a, a spoiler. There's uh, no hiding the baton either. No hiding the baton. They show it. Uh, you know, peeking through the uh the good old clothes there. But uh, even even the villains in this, right? Their their motivations and also their agendas are a little bit fluid uh, yeah. and kind of leave you guessing as to what's actually going to ultimately happen. And I love the fact that it really ramps up too, right? Even though Mizu's on a particular revenge quest, the agenda of the villains is kind of grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that all culminates uh, by the end of the se- uh, season. Yeah, but it's all said and done. I don't have any. Like, I'll be nitpicking if I said, oh, I don't like this particular thing about the show. I watched it and I've been drawn it and I've been thoroughly entertained. And the creators themselves said that this story is set up for multiple seasons. So they said, if there's enough interest, they, w- they already have season two planned out. So some of this is a, well, I'm not going to judge them for bring what it could on, be I want season two. something they want to do in their bigger picture storytelling. As long as it's entertaining, I'm here to watch it every step of the way. The biggest thing, though, is that if you're just not... Actually, one I, I want to highlight one more strength of the show. I like when... Sh- I love it. On a question about, like, what are we spending weeks? Sorry, I got like, Let me get one more Too many strengths. I don't have, yeah, I don't have any real complaints. I'm not going to make up a complaint. No, I am not going to make up it. a complaint. I think people are going to want to watch yeah. it. People My biggest challenge it. is that I work too hard. Right? Uh, <laughs> I care too much. No, but we talked about the nudity a lot, but I like, I like when shows can have balanced, tasteful nudity that fits what actually is happening in the scene and so while there is a lot of nudity and sex in this show never does it feel gratuitous it always feels as if it makes sense for what's happening in the plot like there are scenes that take place in brothels and sex shops and all of that and yes you see a lot of full-on nudity and stuff but it doesn't feel like you're like watching like a softcore porno it feels like they're trying to like when characters are talking they're making a point about how men have hidden desires and these brothels can help people express themselves in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. So you're you're, you're having like these brothel scenes, but it, to your point, Brian, when you said earlier, it's done with intention. It's not just a, Hey, let's put some titties on the screen and call it a day. There's male nudity. There's woman nudity. There's sexual nudity. There's non-sexual nudity. And that to me just shows that they have there's octopus nudity. Yeah, But even that, but even that stuff, like, right. (laughs) They showed it off screen in a way to make the point, but not just be gratuitous because they could have, based on all the other stuff they showed, they clearly are having restraint of what are we going to display openly on screen? What are we going to leave more to the imagination? So to me, that just shows that there's a lot of maturity and restraint in the directing and animation of the show because it doesn't feel like how Game of Thrones would get sometimes where I feel like this is just our nudity shock scene quota rather than, no, there's nudity, but it actually paints a picture in a way that helps you understand the world or even progresses the plot. I think you could have argued the same for Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones would st- got to a mm. point where you just had graphic depictions of like sexual assault. That's like this doesn't need to be shown on screen to make the point that you're trying to make. So it feels more like you're just trying to shock the audience rather than like I never had shock value nudity. Like I said earlier, there's a scene where two characters have sex and it's on screen, but they don't show gratuitous nudity. But it's more about their relationship and that worked really damn well rather than just hey let's show them smashing because we're Netflix and we can get away with it and let's call it a day. 
Any any notes, Brian? Any things you yeah, wish Yeah, I got notes. Of course I got notes. You know, award-winning director. <laughs> There's always notes. Okay. Um midway through the season, there's a big reveal about Mizu's backstory. Uh and that to me really changes or should change her revenge path. And it's a little bit confusing and hard to think through like how wait so she's she continues just like unchanged yeah. and it 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 kind of defies expectations of what you'd imagine for somebody dealing with this kind of weight but then new information changes that um and so that to me is a li- was a bit of a struggle to overcome just logically of, of like what was happening and it was one of those things where you're like, okay, now I got to like talk it out. I talked it out <laughs> with Anna and we like came up with all these reasons of why it would be logical for Mizu to continue. But it re- it required us to do the heavy lifting on our parts to make it real rather than the show giving us a little bit more as to why. But on the flip side of that, I will say the very end at the very end of the last episode there's another reveal and i think that reveal helps make it more palatable but at the same time you're like mizu didn't know that until just then so <laughs> then what uh yeah. so there, there's what, what it is. there's some of that going on here but you know the the rest of the show is so good and the characters are so interesting that you know, I give them a pass. I'll give them a pass on that. You know, because you, you want you just want to see where the where the show goes next. And oh boy, it's going somewhere really cool. It sounds like at least. Yeah. So I'm very excited for season two. I hope it comes before 2028. <laughs> where is Arcane season two? Is that ever going to happen? Where is it? Didn't they release a new trailer? Maybe not. It's coming out like late. 2024. I oh, okay. It takes time to make it make excellent, excellent animation. I mean, I'm still holding uh, on to my draws. I, want it now. I mean, I'm still holding on to my draws for GTA 6 in 2025. So, <laughs> oh my god! Another reason to keep on pushing. On the PS6. <laughs> yeah. All right, y'all. We gotta stay when alive. I'm 50 years old. <laughs> All right. I think we should wrap it up there. Are there any last minute thoughts before we do that? I just want to know how often, Wes, in your life, you have pretended to be a samurai. When I was a kid, I definitely had like one of those plastic toy swords that you get at like the carnival. I used to like fling that thing around all the time, but I don't know. I I think oh I did I did karate as a kid, and there was definitely some people who had swords, and so we would see the the demonstrations of like sword technique, and that was kind of cool that you had they they set up these like mats like wooden no not wooden mats like straw mats, and then they would roll them up, and it'd be like that's like the density of like a human arm or something, or I don't know, you know, whatever. And then you would see the, the, the guys try, or the guys and gals like try and slice it. And sometimes they wouldn't. Cause like, it's a pretty thick, you know, amount of material to get through. And then, you know, you'd see, then they bring out the like better people and they demonstrate and it'd be like, shink. And you'd be like, Whoa. All right. And they would do it fast Whoa. and be like, boom, boom, boom. They do three cuts before it fell. Um, so you're like, okay, well I could see that skill. And then you kind of translate that to the, the animation you're like okay well like that's another level of skill even above that so um i don't know cool that's cool i would pay to see that right yeah i have friends 
Hit us up at confidently underscore pod on Instagram. Let us know what you thought of this episode. What did you think of Blue Eye Samurai? If you've seen it, if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. We all loved it. Everybody we've talked to loved it. Your mom loves it. It's going to be great. Friends, we're out of here. See you later. Bye. Don't talk about my mom. Bye.